Well, praise the Lord. <laughs> I'm going to try a new style of uh, writing my notes. If you could turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter number 5 and verse 38 to verse 42. Matthew chapter number 5, verse 38 to 42, it says, <clears throat> you have, Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Before we go further, let's open up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for all, everyone that is here. I also want to pray for Pastor White as he preaches at Castlegar, and how you've moved in our church. I ask the same for theirs. And Lord, there are, there's a huge need for missionaries around this world, and I pray that you would bless Castlegar Baptist Church right now and Pastor White as he's preaching there. But I also pray that you would speak to the hearts of Grace Baptist Church right now. I pray, Father, that you would empower me as I deliver this word, this message. And I pray, Lord, that it would, it would talk to the right heart. And I pray that it would also be received in a proper way and that the Holy Spirit would give them understanding as, as they uh, take of this message. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe, and I think, Jesus believes in unbalanced accounts of evil. Unbalanced accounts is almost like, an, like something we don't really want, especially these days. Perhaps the quote that the world lives by is this quote that President JFK once said, don't get mad, get even. And perhaps you know the direction I'm about to head in. But Jesus believes in unbalanced accounts of evil. And what do I mean by that? When something unjust is done to us, it needs to be justly given. Something justly right needs to be done. And perhaps I'm already losing you, but I'm going to keep going on this. During this message, I need you to picture a scale. A scale as in a balance, where you could put weights on one side and it would tip over, but then you could put the weights on the other side and try to balance it out. In your mind's eye, I want you to picture that. And I want you to also picture it as your scale. This is your scale of justice. Oftentimes, we get stressed out and we get worked up about things in, that happen in our life. Usually, it's something that's social. We have friends. We tend to have a social life when we have friends. 
And when something happens with our friends, our social scales get tipped over. When something's going wrong in our finances, our financial scale turns to tip over. And usually in life, you don't want your scales to be tipped over. You, in fact, you want those scales to keep staying in balance. You want them to be justified. In fact, most of our life is spent doing things to try and justify these scales in our lives. As we go through life, there are situations that will try to unbalance these scales. And this scale that you are picturing in your mind's eye, I hope, life tries to throw things at you and it will try to unbalance these scales. But what if other than life, your loved ones and the ones you really care about are the ones that are tipping these scales? And then at some point, you're gonna try and justify it because this will happen in every single person's life. At the time that Jesus was telling this, this was during a Sermon on the Mount. What he was trying to portray is the fact, the context is that the Jews were being oppressed by a government that they did not want to be under, the Roman government. In fact, they thought the whole purpose that Jesus came was to establish his kingdom right there and then. But then he's preaching all this and they're thinking, wait, he's not going to do it now, is he? He's going to do it later. That's the disciples that figured that out eventually. But this saying is that do justly even when you are done unjustly. That was Jesus' uh, whole drive when he mentioned these verses. This would tip over the scales of what we would call justice. If you ever look at a court of justice, you have the statue of Lady Justice. Perhaps you know her as this lady who has the sword and then who holds the scales and usually has blindfold on her. The blindfold shows that she will impartially look at justice. Justice is needed to try and balance, uh, to be balanced out. There's no partiality. Treat others better than you got treated. What a philosophy. Philosophy, a philosophy that totally tipped the scales of what we would call justice according to the world. And perhaps there was a lot of scales that were going through the minds of these people these Jews, they had a, a bunch of scales that they were going through, social scales, their financial scales, and they were thinking about every single issue in their life, and they were thinking the Messiah is going to make it all good. And then the Messiah said, first you got to fix this in your own life. Okay? Well, there was, a, there was this story about Pavarotti. You ever heard about Pavarotti? Luciano Pavarotti. <laughs> he said, when I was a boy, my father, a baker, introduced me to the wonders of song. The tenor Luciano Pavarotti relates. He urged me to work very hard to develop my voice. Arrigo Pola, a professional tenor in my hometown of Modena, Italy, took me as a pupil. I also enrolled in a teacher's college. 
On graduating, I asked my father, shall I be a teacher or a singer? Luciano, my father, replied, if you try to sit on two chairs, you will fall between them. For life, you must choose one chair. I chose one. It took seven years of study and frustration before I made my first professional appearance. I took another seven to reach the Metropolitan Opera. And now I think whether it's laying bricks, writing a book, whatever we choose, we should give ourselves to it. Commit, that's the key. Choose one chair. And now in this case, I would like to point to you to choose this one principle over the many. There are three considerations that Jesus actually points out in these verses, but one main overarching principle in this Sermon on the Mount that applies to our scales. Now, if you're still picturing that scale, keep picturing it because we're going to apply some things. So the first consideration, grace and the justice. We were recipients of grace. There's no doubt about it. We were recipients of grace when we deserved God's justice. Somebody once defined grace as, grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. I'd like to place myself in that group. I don't deserve anything. Billy Sunday once was uh, going through a city in the south, and one day he got stopped by the policeman. He was speeding. Not only was he speeding, I guess back then, when you speed, you're not only given a ticket, you have to appear in court. Well, Billy Sunday had to appear in court that day. He pled guilty. And the judge asked him, do you plead guilty? Are you guilty of these charges? And interestingly enough, he said, yes, I am. So the judge said, well, that will be $10. A dollar for every mile you went over the limit. But then suddenly the judge recognized who Billy Sunday actually was. He was this famous evangelist. So what the judge said was, I'll pay your $10. So he pulled out his wallet and he paid Billy Sunday's ticket, what he owed. And not only that, he said, Billy, let's go for dinner. So he bought him a steak. <laughs> you know, that is grace. That is how God treats repentant sinners. It's very interesting because God had a plan of reconciliation when we didn't deserve anything. We who were his enemies, he made us his friend. A lot of people think that Jesus just gave us a free pass. Often today in the world, when you talk about grace, they think, oh, just don't look at my sin. Often that grace is defined as tolerance. But sin is, they, they, they think that, they have to that we have to tolerate sin if we have grace. The truth is, grace points out sin. And it also shows that there is a correction for sin. So when you were in that divine court of law, so to speak, 
and the divine scales are trying to be balanced out, God asks you, do you plead guilty? And when you look at your sin, when you look at everything you've done throughout your life, God will make sure that you point out and plead guilty. Because if you go through every single commandment, at least one, you know that you've sinned. And it doesn't take too long to prove that you are a sinner who is now standing before a holy God. But then you have his son, Jesus Christ, who says, Father, I have paid for his sin. He stands up and we have a word of what he did for us on that day when he took the scales of holiness and he balanced them out. And we call it justification. What is justification? Justification is making things right again. That's the simplest of definitions I can give you. In a nutshell, making it right again. The scale that you could not balance, Jesus balanced for you. The scales that you could not make right, Jesus did it for you. When someone asks a question, you make it right and you give an answer. That's justifying. When a wrong had been done, it needs to be made right. That's justifying. When our sin was tipping the scales of holy justice, Christ stepped in and made it right. He claimed us justified. And today, you as a sinner, if you have accepted Jesus Christ's offer at the cross, when he died for you, him placing his righteousness above yours, when God sees your sin, he doesn't see your record. He sees Christ's. That is only if you have accepted that. Therefore, if he sees Christ, you've been justified. You've been made right. Not, out of, as, not as if you deserved it, but because Christ did it out of love for you. Christ forgave you. So, let's move on to the second one. Looking at your scales again. The second consideration is paying evil with good. Usually when someone has done us wrong, we say, I want my payback. The evil, the evil world will tell you, we want revenge. The top grossing movie is called The Avengers. I mean, that's how bad we want our vengeance, okay? We don't need to pay evil with evil. As Christians, we pay it with good. Something that must be considered is that even if you have grace, it does not mean you should be living in sin. A, a Presbyterian pastor, Tim Keller, once said, the gospel that devours the very motivation you have for sin. It completely saps your very need and reason to live any way you want. Anyone who insists the gospel encourages us to sin has simply not understood it yet, nor begun to feel its power. Too often times, we as Christians fall into this category where we have this pet sin. We keep it hidden. We usually like to keep it somewhere away from other Christians so that they don't see it. But then, once we get found out, we try to justify it. There was a story of monkeys in India 
there was an infestation of monkeys back in India. Uh, back, uh, I think it was about 40 or 50 years ago. And what these monkeys did in these villages was that they would go around and they would, you know, wreak havoc. What do monkeys do? Well, they bite you and they pull on your hair and they steal foods from your stalls and everything. And it was wonderful. They hated it. <laughs> but one of the things they figured out they should do is try and capture these monkeys and then put them back into the jungle, right? So they devised a plan. They found jars, all right? And these jars had a hole in them. And what they did was they put candy inside of these jars. And they found out that these monkeys really love the candy. So they put some candy inside these jars. And once the monkey would find out that, okay, nobody's watching it, it's gonna go sneak up to these jars and stick its hand right into it and then try to grab the candy. But as soon as it would try and pull it out, it would get stuck. Its arm would get stuck. Now, we being the smarter person, we know just let go of the candy and you're free. But guess what the monkey doesn't do? Let go of the candy. So, often in times, we, just like the monkey, when we are presented the attractive offer, knowing that unless we let go, it will destroy us. Not only that, but sometimes we cause other Christians to sin and stumble as well. And I hate saying this, but we have this monkey see and monkey do attitude as well. See, the second ending to that story is that unless we let go of our hurts and bitterness, we will become trapped by the past, wanting to move forward yet unable to. Yet this is difficult as we find it perversely attractive to hold on to our pain and our bitterness. It's interesting because we, for some reason, even though we as Christians are meant to leave, are meant to leave the offenses that we were once hurt by, knowing that our offenses have been forgiven, we are not letting, willing to let go of, our, of offenses that others have done to us. We are bad at letting things go. We really are. The flesh it can easily be subdued, but the truth is, too often in our life, we let it permeate in many things that we do. When someone offends you, you forgive them by faith. And really, I do say it is by faith, because let's actually all turn to Romans 12. Romans 12 and chapter 19. When you forgive someone, you're actually doing it by faith. It's not by a feeling. Verse 19 says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. So, okay, you're wondering, where is the faith? Well, the faith is in believing that the Lord will take care of it. 
It's the same promise that he made in Deuteronomy 32, in verse 35 and 36. Who here has heard of Tyndale? You've heard of Tyndale because of the story of the English Bible. But did you know that for the longest time ever, until Tyndale came along, we did not have the word mercy? And this is actually one of Pastor White's favorite words that he loves to define. Tyndale was the man who came up with the idea of the word mercy. Back in the day, there was a word that came from the German word, uh, from, from the German, where when Martin Luther made his translation, he had a word for the word mercy, or where we find the word mercy, it was called Nadenstuhl. Is it the same in Dutch? Is it close? Close, all right. Well, Nadenstuhl was an act of propitiation. What do I mean by, by propitiation? It was a satisfactory payment. So you're wondering, wait, what does payment have to do with mercy? Well, let's take a look at the root word of the word mercy. Where, where Tyndale found the root word for mercy was from the word, Latin word merces. And if you know it, the word merchant comes from it. The word merchandise comes from it. The word mercenary comes from it. Now do you see where satisfactory, satisfactory payment kind of makes sense? All right. So where does it fit, though? What does mercy actually mean? These are all the things related to paying a fee or reward for services rendered. Thus, mercy means a fee for services performed. In French, when you say thank you, for services that have been rendered to you, you say merci. Now the word for thank you in Spanish is grace, gracias. They are related, okay? The Christian usage of this word meant to do compassionate service here on earth for those who have no power to pay or render a fee so as to receive the rewards in heaven. So you render mercy to someone because you know your payment is not on earth. Your payment is in heaven. When you forgive someone, when you do something for someone on earth, though they will never be able to repay you back, your payment is still waiting for you in heaven. You know the story of the Good Samaritan, and you know that he didn't have to help. He really didn't have to help. If you knew the story of where he was in, his location was from Jerusalem to Jericho. That was his road. If you knew where Samaria was, Jews tried as hard as they can to go around Samaria. They hated Samaritans that much. So you can probably imagine that when a Samaritan entered Jerusalem, they were probably mocked. They were probably spat on, and maybe here and there, even physically abused. You didn't want to be a Samaritan in Jerusalem. It was just not the good thing to do, or not the best thing to do. But yet, the Good Samaritan story is that he was in this, uh, he was on the way from Jerusalem all the way to Jericho, and he finds this man who's been beaten and robbed. No doubt, 
he had been ruined. His reputation must have been ruined. But he still decided to forgive first. No doubt, forgiveness was part of what he had done first. If you're still in Romans, Romans 12, 21, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. We have probably watched or heard stories of where mercy was shown, where forgiveness was given after perhaps a genocide had taken place. The victims of their family and their families had been lost. And then they go up to the, the people who were in charge of these genocides and they'll say, I forgive you. We've probably heard stories like that. Now these are even stories coming from the world, not from Christians too. So we had two considerations. The first one was the grace and the justice. Second one, paying evil with good. Third consideration, give multiples for singles. What do I mean by that? Forgiveness goes further than forgetfulness. Forgiveness is not just forgetfulness. The good Samaritan did not stop at forgiving the man. And you know the story. He went a little further than just forgiving. Because he could have just forgiven every single Jew that's ever done him wrong while he was in Jerusalem and then just passed by. But what he did was he bound up the wounds. He poured oil and wine, gave him a beast, either a donkey or a horse, and then he took him to an inn. Not only did he just leave them in the inn, he paid the fees so that the innkeeper could take care of that, uh, of that man. Not only did he do that, he said, whatever else this man needs, buy it, and I'll come back and pay for it. Forgetfulness, forgiveness stops at one point, but grace or giving grace goes even further. It goes the extra mile. Let's all turn back to Matthew 5. And verse 39. It says, But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but watch this, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn, him, turn to him the other also. In the second one, right after the comma, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. Let's see it even further here. Shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. You see, for some reason, forgiving someone will not only just even out the scale, but we as Christians ought to go further than just evening out the scale. Somebody has done you wrong, forgiving them would tip the scale back. But then showing them grace tips it into a better position. You notice it in Christ's life while he was here, but also you see it in the way Christ treated people. 
You see, a lot of times we, we get caught up in what the world is showing us. A lot of times we absorb the philosophies of the world. We watch TV shows. In fact, I don't know why, but I find TV shows so boring these days and movies really boring these days because you can actually predict what's going to happen. The plot is about somebody not forgiving someone. I kid you not. Because nine times out of ten, it's somebody does someone wrong and then the other person doesn't want to forgive them and therefore you have sequels. <laughs> I'm not kidding you, that's how it works. So, when you look at it, because over half the plot is they did me wrong, okay, well, I'll forgive them. Now, movie number one should have ended, but it didn't. For some reason, you have, but they do you wrong again. And then what? You don't have the resources to forgive them again? And the truth is, the world doesn't. They don't. But we do. As Christians, we have resources. How much resource do we have? My grace is sufficient for thee. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. You have an unending supply of grace. How many times can you forgive? <laughs> yeah. When someone does you wrong, forgive them. If they do you wrong again, forgive them. Now, here's what happens after the second and third and probably the 490th time. It diffuses the proverbial bomb. There's a bomb that wants to go off in your Christian life every single day, and it wants to tip these scales. Your social, your social life has scales, and you usually want to equalize, and you try to make them pay back, but don't. Make them pay back. You forgive them, and not only do you forgive them, you fellowship with them. You know, Christ, he did not stop at just forgiveness. You see, you sinned, and then he forgave you. Not only did he forgive you, at your salvation, there were 33 things, according to some theologians, or a theologian, there were 33 things that actually took place. Here are the top five. The believer is in the eternal plan of God. Now God has a sovereign purpose for every believer. The second is he is redeemed. The believer is purchased out of a slave market of sin. He is reconciled. The Christian has a perfect and unending peace with God. Number four, he's related to God through propitiation. God is satisfied that the sin problem has been solved perfectly. And number five, forgiven all trespasses. All trespasses, past, present, and future. You see, forgiveness in its ultimate form is an act of love. not retaliation. If you're in Matthew 5, number 44, verse number 44, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you 
and persecute you. A lot of times, this is probably one of the most difficult things as a Christian, even me personally, I've had to face. Because it is difficult, but I do realize that his grace is still sufficient for me. And it's also sufficient for you. You see, somebody, actually, it was Ivan, you preached this Wednesday, and you said, God's love is not conditional. No matter how bad you do, no matter how good you do, it's at this same and the highest level possible of love. If there was a bucket that you can fill of what your love can handle, it would be overflowing. That's how big God's love is for you. And if your bucket had no bottom, it would still be overflowing. That's how big God's love is for you. So perhaps the next time you can think of a time where someone did you wrong. Because this happens a lot. Ask yourself, did you really forgive them? And perhaps there will be a time where you had gotten to a point where you couldn't even look at them. Did you really forgive them? There may be a time where just their mere name mentioned will give you this bitter feeling. Ask yourself, did you really forgive them? We would murmur and gossip and slander their name. Even though we considered them enemies, ask yourself, did you really forgive them? Because it's hard. What has really astonished me is that unsaved people, people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and personal Savior, who haven't gone through the process of getting saved, have a better idea of this sometimes. How is it that we as Christians who gather in a place under the name and under the banner of love have trouble with this sometimes? God forgave us, but we have trouble forgiving our own sometimes. I want to read you a quick little story. It's not actually a quick little story. It's actually three, four pages long. But it's a very good story. During World War II, Japan invaded, conquered, and occupied Korea. Of all of their oppressors, Japan was the most ruthless. They overwhelmed the Koreans with a brutality that would sicken the strongest of stomachs. Their crimes against women and children were inhumane. And many Koreans live today with the physical and emotional scars from the Japanese occupation. The thing is, what they tried to do was to oppress the Christians. And while they were trying to do so, something that they don't realize is that when Christians get oppressed, we don't diminish. We actually end up growing. It didn't work back then. It didn't work in Rome. And it won't work here. Yet somehow the Japanese thought they would have a different success record. The conquerors started by refusing to allow churches to meet and jailing many of the key Christian spokesmen. 
The oppression intensified as the Japanese military increased its profile in the South Pacific. The land of the rising sun spread its influence through a reign of savage brutality. Anguish filled the hearts of the oppressed and kindled hatred deep in their souls. One pastor persistently entreated his local Japanese police chief for permission to meet for services. Finally, the news spread and a lot of other Christians started to join in. They wanted in on this Sunday service. So they started to gather into this one church and the policemen, they left, they left them to do it. As they closed the doors behind them, they shut out the cares of oppression. And so their voices of praise could not be concealed inside the little wooden frame sanctuary. Song after song rang through the open windows into the bright Sunday morning. For a handful of peasants listening nearby, the last two songs this congregation sang seemed suspended in time. It was during a stanza of nearer, my God, to thee, that the Japanese police chief waiting outside gave the orders. The people toward the back of the church could hear them when they barricaded the doors, but no one realized that they had doused the church with kerosene until they smelled the smoke. The dried wooden skin of the small church quickly ignited. Fumes filled the structure as tongues of flames began to lick the baseboard on the interior walls. There was an immediate rush for the windows, but momentary hope recoiled in horror as the men climbing out the windows came crashing back in, their bodies ripped by a hail of bullets. The good pastor knew it was the end. With a calm that comes from confidence, he led his congregation in a hymn whose words served as a fitting farewell to earth and a loving salutation to heaven. The first few words were all the prompting the terrified worshipers needed. With smoke burning their eyes, they instantly joined as one to sing their hope and leave their legacy. Their song became a serenade to the horrified and helpless witnesses outside. Their words also tugged at the hearts of the cruel men who oversaw this flaming execution of the innocent. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote his sacred head for such a worm as I? Just before the roof collapsed, they sang the last verse, their words an eternal testimony to their faith. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. The strains of music and wails of children were lost in roar of flames. The elements that once formed bone and flesh mixed with the smoke and dissipated into the air. 
The bodies that once housed life fused with the charred rubble of a building that once housed a church. But the souls who left singing finished their course in the throne room of God. Clearing the incinerator remains was the easy part. Erasing the hate would take decades. For some of the relatives of the victims, these, this carnage was too much. Evil had stooped to a new low, and there seemed to be no way to curb their bitter lo loathing of the Japanese. In the decades that followed, that bitterness was passed on to a new generation. The Japanese, although conquered, remained a hated enemy. The monument that the Koreans built at the location of the fire not only memorialized the people who died, but stood as a mute reminder of their pain. Inner rest? How could rest coexist with a bitterness deep as marrow in the bones? The Korean people who found it too hard to forgive could not enjoy the peace that passes all understanding. Hatred choked their joy. It wasn't until 1972 that any hope came. A group of Japanese pastors traveling through Korea came upon the memorial. When they read the details of the tragedy and the names of the spiritual brothers and sisters who had perished, they were overcome with shame. Their country had sinned. And even though none of them were personally involved, some were not even born at the time of the tragedy, they still felt a national guilt that could not be excused. In the end, the Japanese pastors, they were able to find about $25,000, 10 million yen, to purchase a building for, these, for this congregation. When the dedication service for a new building was held, a delegation from Japan joined the relatives and special guests. Although their generosity was acknowledged and their attempts at making peace appreciated, the memories were still there. Hatred preserves pain. It keeps the wounds open and the hurts fresh. The Koreans' bitterness had festered for decades. Christian brothers or not, these Japanese were descendants of a ruthless enemy. The speeches were made, the details of the tragedy recalled, and the names of the dead honored. It was time to bring the service to a close. Someone in charge of the agenda thought it would be appropriate to conclude with the same two songs that were sung the day the church was burned. The song leader began the words, to nearer my God to thee. But something remarkable happened as the voices mingled on the familiar melody. As the memories of the past mixed with the truth of the song, resistance started to melt. The inspiration that gave hope to a doomed collection of churchgoers in a past generation gave hope once more. The song leader closed the service with the hymn at the cross. The normally stoic Japanese could not contain themselves. The tears that began to fill their eyes during the song suddenly gushed from deep inside. They turned to their Korean spiritual relatives and begged them to forgive. The guarded calloused hearts of the Koreans were not quick to surrender. But the love of the Japanese believers, not intimidated by decades of hatred, tore at the Koreans' emotions. And so they sang, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden 
of my heart rolled away. One Korean turned to a Japanese brother, then another. And then the floodgates, holding back a wave of emotion, let go. The Koreans met their new Japanese friends in the middle. They clung to each other and wept. Japanese tears of repentance and Korean tears of forgiveness intermingled to bathe the sight of an old nightmare. Heaven had sent the gift of reconciliation to a little white church in Korea. Suffering, of course, is a part of life. People hurt people. It's part of life. Almost all of us have experienced it at some time. Maybe it was some gossip that someone was saying about you. Maybe there are things that people say at work about you. Maybe it's the way that some of your coworkers treat you. Maybe someone did something absolutely stupid and was not even willing to say sorry about it. We have all felt bitterness in one way or another and suffered from something that had happened in life. But the truth is it kills you from the inside. Bitterness clamps down on your soul like iron shackles. We really can do better as Christians, especially because we have experienced an infinite amount of grace. His grace is sufficient for thee, and the trying of your faith is what worketh the patience in you. Now, if you find this whole thing as an argument that doesn't convince you, let me present to you one last thing. Your faith will only grow as far as your prayer life will. And trust me, until you can get right with your brethren, your prayer life will be at a standstill and will not move. Let's turn one last time to 1 John. First John chapter 3. Sorry, chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Love your enemy, forgive them, and go beyond, and go the extra mile, and become their friend. Start fellowshipping. This is how a team gets the work done. We talked about teamwork this morning. We're talking about the inner workings now. Perhaps there is an account you need to settle with someone today. Not through revenge, but with grace. Perhaps there is an account that you need to balance. Not through revenge, but grace. You know someone who does have an account with someone. Pray for them. The only way to justify this account is to do the right thing. Forgive and give grace to them.
Let's all stand for prayer. Perhaps there was something that spoke to you. Perhaps there is an account you need to settle with grace. Or perhaps there is no account for yourself, but you know someone else who has an account to settle. Pray for them.